when you go to Israel, there are a few surprises that can catch a traveller out. For instance, Friday sundown, everything stops. When the sun goes down on a Friday evening, it means that the Sabbath has started. And for 24 hours, nothing happens in Israel. And there's all sorts of ways this can catch a traveller out. For instance, taking a lift becomes an exercise in patience. For operating a lift is considered work. And so what do you do on the Sabbath when you're not allowed to work and you're on the 20th floor of a hotel? Well, fortunately, in Israel and places around the world where a lot of Jewish folk stay in hotels, they have Sabbath mode for the elevator. And you see on the left-hand top switch there, it's on Sabbath mode, which means the elevator will run continuously for 24 hours. It will stop on each floor for a set amount of time to allow people to go on and off. So you're on the 20th floor. Well, from the ground to first, and then it will open, no matter who gets on or off or no one. And after a set amount of time, the doors will close and it will go to the second floor and the doors will open. And on and on and on, 24 hours a day. It's just one example where a traveller in Israel can get caught out by the Sabbath. Now, Jewish folks certainly know how to take the Sabbath day seriously. But so did a lot of Christians not more than a few decades ago. Two generations back in Scotland, public playgrounds would padlock the swings and the seesaws so that on the Sabbath they could not be used. Just a generation ago, one of my uncles, he loved his rugby, but in an open brethren family, he was never allowed to play rugby on a Sunday. So the times when he would sneak away and play a Sunday afternoon game, there would be always someone that would dob him into his family. Always. So even in living memory, Christians have taken the Sabbath very seriously. So today, in our journey through Mark's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus getting in a whole heap of trouble over the Sabbath. And it's much more serious than Jesus operating a lift, going for a swing, or playing a game of rugby. And so we'll start by looking at the background behind the Sabbath. Why was it so important for the Jewish folks, even still today? Then we'll look at the two controversies that he got involved with about the Sabbath, and then there'll be an invitation. So at the background, two controversies and an invitation. So what's the background? Why the fuss about the Sabbath? Why the Jewish folk are so strict about not working from sundown to sundown Friday to Saturday? Well, there are a number of reasons. One reason is it's a very important cultural marker. How do you know if someone's Jewish? There are three ways that you know if someone's Jewish. One is their diet, so they won't eat pork and some other things. The males are circumcised. And lastly, the Sabbath is kept. So very important for Jewish folk that they keep all three regulations. And it's in the very first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, that the Sabbath is introduced. After six days of creating, God has everything as he wants it. He says it's good, very good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 we read, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. 
And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. So here's the origin of the Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day. More than that, he blessed the day. He made it holy. So that's the precedent of the Sabbath and it's set in the first two chapters of the Bible before anything else is set. Sabbath, you could say, is number one when it comes to regulations. That's one reason why it's very important to the Jewish folk. Later, God chose Abraham and his offspring to be set apart as his people and Abraham's descendants, they multiplied and grew until they became a nation. That nation was rescued from Egypt, rescued from slavery, led to Mount Sinai and given the law. And so Moses goes to the top of the mountain and the first laws here given are the Ten Commandments. And commandment number five is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So this is the second reason why it's very important for the Jewish folk. Not only was it established in creation itself, but it's the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Now Moses is on the mountain for quite a few days and gets many other laws and he's just about to go back down the mountain to give these laws, the Ten Commandments and the others to the Jewish people when God says, and these are God's final words to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And this is Exodus 31. It continues. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. Put to death. Surely not. (laughs) That's a bit extreme, isn't it? Yet in Numbers chapter 15, verse 32, there's the account of an Israelite. An Israelite who should know better. He's collecting firewood on the Sabbath. And this is the first time the Sabbath has really been broken and so they keep him in custody and they, and they ask God, what's his fate? And he is killed, put to death by stoning. Goodness me. Death or banishment for breaking the Sabbath. This is the third reason why Jewish folk take the Sabbath seriously. First of all, uh, it's established in creation. Second of all, it's the fifth commandment. And thirdly, there is punishment associated with Sabbath breaking. Now, because there's so much at stake, it's very important to be absolutely clear about what is work and what isn't. So is pushing the button on a lift work or not? I mean, imagine all those decisions that had to be made. So by Jesus' day, 39 activities were controlled by the Sabbath. This include obvious things like trading, you couldn't buy and sell, you couldn't labour, you couldn't harvest. Obvious. There were some not-so-obvious things as well as travel. You could only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. Preparing food? No, you couldn't prepare food on the Sabbath. You had to prepare food. What about writing a letter? One a day, one a Sabbath. No more. Two letters? Out of the question. A woman couldn't look in the mirror in case she saw a grey hair and was tempted to pluck it out. (laughs) If your house is on fire, you could not go in and carry out your clothes. But... There was no Sabbath regulation about wearing as many clothes as you like. So you could go on and put a whole bunch of clothes in while it's burning and then rush out. This then is the -the over-the-top environment that Jesus and his disciples were living in. On the one hand, there was a real sincere and genuine desire to keep the Sabbath to honour God. 
But on the other hand, the Sabbath was regulated, over-regulated, with even ludicrous interpretations. So this then is the background. So, going to our passage in Mark, this will help us understand Jesus' response and the Pharisees' questions. And so we pick this up in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the, the grain fields. So as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So two things to ask ourselves here. First of all, or what's the accusation? And secondly, who's making it? Well, the accusation is Sabbath-breaking, harvesting. The picking of grains of wheat as a convenient and tasty snack was considered harvesting and therefore work. Not a big deal in the minds of us, but a serious accusation in Jesus' day. But we also notice who's making the accusation. It's the Pharisees. And in chapter 2, this is the fourth accusation by them. If we remember back to the healed paralytic, uh, the question was, who can forgive sins but God alone? With Levi's conversion, the Pharisees asked, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? With fasting, they asked, why aren't your disciples fasting? And now it's, why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath? And though it's unlikely to end in stoning like the firewood collector, it's a serious accusation. So how does Jesus respond? What's his reply? Well, he quotes the Old Testament. He cites an incident found way back in 1 Samuel. Jesus cites this example and we read it in verse 25. Jesus said, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abbath of the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now, all those listening there would have known exactly what Jesus was referring to, but a number of us don't. So what's the context? Well, in Jesus' day and through the temple and tabernacle history, every day 12 loaves of bread representing each tribe would be baked fresh and presented on the table and then the priests were able to eat that, and no one else. Yet David, while escaping from the murderous king Saul, and in quite desperate and urgent need, asked the priest if he and his companions could have the consecrated bread, and they were given to him. And so Jesus cites this as a precedent, but it's much more than a precedent that you might hear in a court of law, because he's actually telling us something quite significant about himself. You see, David was God's anointed who went on to be a king, the, the greatest king Israel ever had. And this is why he and his companions could eat the consecrated bread. So Jesus' logic is this. Because David and his companions broke the law over food, then so his disciples could pluck grain. But, this is a big but, this logic only works if Jesus, like David, is God's anointed. Okay? Joe Public your average Jewish person would never be able to eat the consecrated bread. But David got away with it because he was God's anointed. And Jesus is saying, I am like David. I am in the same league as God's anointed, the most amazing king Israel ever had. And this is a very strong claim. But Jesus doesn't stop here, for he goes on the attack. 
He wants to put these hypocritical, law-manipulating Pharisees in their place. And so we pick it up in verse 27. Two claims here. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, is a reminder that the Sabbath was made to benefit people, to bless them. But all the subsequent regulations by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had added to this Sabbath and made God's gift a burden. Sabbath was a day that you remembered God's provision. I work hard six days a week. On the seventh day I rest to remind myself that it's actually God's generosity and not my hard work alone that has given me the life that I have. It's a day to rest and enjoy family. It's a day to come and enjoy worshipping the living God. The Sabbath was a blessing, but the, the Pharisees with their laws had so twisted it that it became a burden that people were too worried about Sabbath breaking and getting into trouble than to enjoy the day. And with this statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus puts it all back in perspective. But what he says next is audacious, is bold and very brazen. He goes on to say, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now who is the Son of Man? Well, the Son of Man is Jesus himself. Whenever Jesus wanted to reveal something special about himself, he called himself the Son of Man. In the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man is on Jesus' lips 14 times and each time he's telling us something really important about himself. It's worth a study in itself. And so whenever you hear the Son of Man, you think, well, what's, what's Jesus about to say about himself? And what he says is, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, he just implied that he was at least as important as David and here he's implying that he's far greater than David. Because this claim to be Lord of the Sabbath goes right back to Genesis itself. By declaring himself Lord, he is echoing the first six days of creation and the seventh. He is saying, my authority goes back to those first six days of creation and the seventh, in which after creating, I rested. What a claim. An amazing claim. And so we're reminded of the words of the opening words of John's Gospel, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, this is Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and here it comes. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus can say he's the Lord of the Sabbath because he is the Lord of creation. Jesus is saying, I was there for those six days and I rested on the seventh. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. All things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Christ and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus was with his Father during creation and Jesus rested on that seventh day. Jesus' claim to be Lord of the Sabbath points directly to his creative 
and universe-sustaining power. It's an amazing claim. If the first rebuttal didn't blow the Pharisees away, then this must have. And yet the chapter ends quite suddenly. We don't know how the Pharisees reacted, but we have a very big clue because we see it in Mark chapter 3. Let's pick up the next controversial incident over the Sabbath. Mark 3 verses 1 and 2. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now who are some of them? Who are some of them who are watching Jesus closely? Well verse 6 tells us it's the Pharisees. Now this is a step up. In Mark chapter 2, it was that Jesus would do or say something and the Pharisees would react and get upset and then accuse Jesus with those questions. That's changed now. The Pharisees are actively looking to accuse Jesus. They're not just waiting to react. They're thinking, we're going to get this guy and we're going to get him good. Their logic is something like this. They want to be rid of Jesus, but popular opinion, the crowd were for Jesus. And so they couldn't just get rid of Jesus. They were going to have to turn popular opinion against him. Now the crowds, they knew about the Sabbath. And so if they could convince the crowds that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker, that would turn the crowds against Jesus. However, Jesus senses something's up. And so there's the man with the shriveled hand. And we can imagine that sense of expectation. The crowds had known that Jesus was a healer and he was worshipping on the Sabbath like he did and there was a man with an obvious illness and you can think everyone in the congregation would be thinking, is Jesus going to heal? And the Pharisees are saying, we hope he's going to heal him because we'll, we'll do him. We'll have him if he heals this man with the shriveled hand. But Jesus senses something is up. So Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Jesus calls him to the front. So he stands in front of the congregation just like this and Jesus says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. We might call this a preemptive strike. Before the Pharisees can accuse Jesus of Sabbath breaking, he backs them into a corner and he presents them with a no-win situation. If they respond, well, the Sabbath is to save a life, then that plays into Jesus' hands, doesn't it? He can heal the man and they can't criticise him because they've just said Sabbath is to heal life. But if the Pharisees, who are sitting there probably in the front row, the Pharisees say, well, the Sabbath is to kill, well, that goes against Scripture, and the crowds will not like it. And so being put on the spot, we pick it up in verse 4, they remained silent. Verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Completely restored. And with this healing, Jesus proves his credentials. Let me explain. You see, with the paralytic man we read about earlier, Jesus proclaimed, your sins are forgiven. But words are cheap. Anyone can say that. So Jesus healed the crippled man to prove that the Son of Man could forgive sins. Now back in the grain fields, Jesus proclaimed, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But words are cheap. Anyone can say that. So here on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand. And by doing that, 
he proves his credentials. I am the Lord of the Sabbath and I will give life and I will heal on the Sabbath. And you can imagine those in the church, those in the synagogue, how would they react? Surely people were off their feet, praising God, cheering, loud and emotional, excited, and so unpresbyterian. We can change. <laughs> can you imagine how the man felt? The man who had been healed, hugging Jesus. Do you know no one could go into the temple of God if they had a deformity? You know, And so he was a man now that had been barred from worshipping God in the temple, but now he could go. He could worship God in the temple. So he would have been excited. And I'm sure he had the biggest of smiles and a heart overflowing with thanksgiving to the living God. But can you imagine the Pharisees who had been put in a spot? What would their response be? We don't have to imagine though because verse 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is a big step up, isn't it? At the beginning of the church service, they just wanted to accuse him. At the end of the church service, they wanted to kill him. That's a huge step up. And do you see that they've answered Jesus' question? Jesus said, is the Sabbath a time to give life or to kill? And they were quiet. They've answered the question, haven't they? Because they've immediately left and plotted to kill Jesus. And so we see the irony and that their hearts are laid bare. The hypocrites who wanted to keep the law. Look, look, you're breaking the Sabbath, just picking some grain. And yet, the next moment, want to break commandment number six, thou shalt not murder. Hypocrites. And here we see the shadow of the cross fall firmly on Jesus. For we know their plots will come together and Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of creation, who rested on the seventh day, will be betrayed and whipped and mocked and nailed to that old rugged cross. John chapter 1 verse 10, Jesus was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. Wow. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of creation and the world did not recognise him. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own and his own did not receive him. And that's talking about going to the Jewish folk and they did not receive him. Not only did they not receive him, but they rejected him. The Lord of the Sabbath was rejected by his own. But amazingly, amazingly, this rejection led to our salvation. For though the plot succeeded, what the Pharisees didn't count on, could never count on, was that if you crucify the Lord of the Sabbath, the grave will not hold him down. For on that third day, that glorious day, that wonderful day, Christ rose from the dead. The iron grip of death was shattered and the Lord of the Sabbath rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. Death was defeated, and to all those who bow the knee, eternal life and everlasting joy. And do you know that's yours today? Eternal life and everlasting joy to those who bow their knee to the Lord of the Sabbath. And this offer of salvation is extended to everyone here this morning. Remember I said we'd look at the background the two controversial stories, and now we've seen who the Lord of the Sabbath is, an invitation. 
if you have not experienced the joy of knowing Jesus as your Lord, today is the day. You can know Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, as your personal Lord and Saviour. And as, as I was working through this and I was praying through this during the week, I had a sense this is a good time to offer an invitation to the people here today. So we're going to play the last hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns, a wonderful hymn to celebrate the Lord of the Sabbath. And if you would like to experience knowing the Lord of the Sabbath as your personal saviour, if you want to commit your life to him, then I ask you during the song or straight after the service to come to the front. And Mari and I um, love to pray with you, love to speak with you and pray for you. But the invitation is there for everyone. Some of us, well, I can remember when I made that invitation when I was about 13 or 14. And even though there have been a lot of ups or downs, Christ has never left me. Even when I've drifted away, he's grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. Sometimes gently and sometimes not so gently. And I am forever grateful. And maybe that's what God's saying to you. Maybe you have drifted. Maybe God stirred to you this morning that you need to come back. Well, you can also come and receive prayer. But don't leave this morning until you bow your knee to the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray.